Luke chapter 14, verses 1 down to verse 14. Let me read this for us. This is what God's word says. Beginning in Luke chapter 14, verse 1. One Sabbath, when he, that is Jesus, went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask now that as we have opened your word, that this being your word, the revelation of yourself, of your glory, that you would reveal that to us into our very hearts. And that we might see and behold your glory with the eyes of faith as enabled by your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been with us throughout our study of Luke's gospel, you know all too well by now that the most hostile enemies of Jesus have been this group of people called the Pharisees. The Pharisees, and their name means the pious ones or the separated ones, uh, they were the Jewish religious leaders whose life and teaching was, ironically, everything that God hated. Uh, The whole hypocrisy of putting on the appearance of holiness while being ungodly and vile inside. And and, uh, they're all about mere outward motions of religious duties and rituals, but devoid of real spiritual life within. And for them, it was such that that any obedience to God, obeying his commandments, was all a burdensome legalistic obligation, which they did begrudgingly and self-righteously. And so they were these miserable Scrooge-like type of figures and being the religious leaders, they unfortunately taught everyone else to follow their miserable footsteps of empty, dead religion. And so needless to say, they were quite the unsavory bunch, the epitome of what we might say the spiritually walking dead, at least in God's eyes. But while we observe these awful qualities about the Pharisees, something we must always bear in mind as Christians is the admonition that Jesus gave earlier in chapter 12, verse 1, where he said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, but he said it to his disciples. 
By that I mean that as believers, we must always be on guard of the Pharisaic spirit and influence and mindset creeping into our own hearts and lives. Because evidently Jesus knew and expected this to be a lurking danger that we'd have to uh, continually struggle with. And so the Pharisees in the Gospels are not recorded just to serve as a foil for us to mock and feel better about ourselves. But rather, God sovereignly ordained all of these conflicts and controversies with them and recorded them for us so that what we see in them, we might take note of it and search our own selves to see if there are any traces of it that can be found within. And here in Luke chapter 14, we're given a window into this one dinner scene at the house of a chief Pharisee. And in this one sitting, we see three different issues and conflicts arise, which Jesus addresses as vital teaching moments. I mean, technically there's four uh, issues, but we're going to just cover the three today from verse one down to verse 14. But in any case, as we look at these three issues that Jesus addresses, they all have one thing in common, which is that the Pharisees had a problem with love. In a sense, everything that was wrong with them can be boiled down to a total disintegration of love. And that even any vestige of love that remained was but a polluted form of it, as we'll see. But the fact that love is the root issue with the Pharisees and the spirit of the Pharisee, it should be no surprise to us because this is the nature of who God is. Holy, eternal, infinite love. And it is in that love that he created mankind to bear his image and to reflect his glory of divine love. But what does sin do? Sin corrupts and defiles the image bearer so that he no longer accurately reflects his maker's glory. But again, this is what we were created for, to, to know God and to love God with the entirety of our beings as we find our highest joy and, and satisfaction abiding in his love. And by that, God is glorified when we enjoy him and we exult in his greatness. And it was God's design that being so filled with the goodness of his love, that our love for God would cascade into love for others. And thus, as God's design, weaving the entire cosmos in the fabric of divine, holy love. But the Pharisees, they knew nothing of such love. They only knew how to relate to God as though he were a harsh master, a slave driver, and not the father of perfect love and unfailing goodness as revealed through Christ. I mean, think about it. When's the last time you saw any Pharisee recorded in Scripture address God as Father? Never. And that's why it was such a shocking thing to hear that Jesus, when he taught his disciples how to pray the Lord's Prayer, how did he begin? Father, hallowed be your name. That was revolutionary. But you see, this is the cancerous leaven of the Pharisees. The, the Pharisaic spirit and mindset is a defilement of the glory of God's love and truly knowing him as the God of infinite eternal love. And church, we must always be wary of our own hearts, of allowing this spirit of dead religion to overtake us and so be robbed of the joy of knowing and living the love of God. And so here, let this 
dinner party serve as a grid with which to examine and guard our own hearts in Christ Jesus. And as I mentioned, there's three issues that arise here uh, in verses 1 to 14, and each of these touch upon a different angle of how the Pharisaic spirit corrupts the purity of divine love. And the first is what we might call the simple absence of love. Uh, It all begins in verse 1 as Jesus is invited for a meal at the home of a ruler of the Pharisees. Uh, He he was one of the top dogs, and also the lawyers were present, but these are not the lawyers that you see uh, in the high-rise buildings in the streets of uh, San Francisco. But these, when when you see lawyers in the Gospels, it's referring to teachers of the Old Testament law. They were the theologians, the, the Bible scholars. Now, just as an aside, notice how Jesus really didn't refuse anyone, even the Pharisees and lawyers who were his enemies. Jesus took every opportunity to preach the gospel to anyone and to everyone. I mean, just look at his long-suffering love and mercy, even to these self-righteous religious leaders. But the Pharisees, of course, they were quite the contrast because here the important detail that sets the stage is the fact that this particular dinner was on the Sabbath day, which immediately tells you that yet another Sabbath controversy is imminent. And apparently the intention behind inviting Jesus over may not have been so sincere as verse 1 says that they were watching him carefully. They were testing Jesus watching his every move, seeing if there was some fault that they could find in him to discredit all that he was teaching. And so we can't help but wonder if what happens next was actually staged. Because verse 2 tells us that at this dinner was a man who had dropsy. Now what's dropsy? It's a medical condition where the body swells uncontrollably with fluid, usually due to some catastrophic organ failure inside. It's also called edema. That's a horrible condition. This man was dying. His body was imploding, as it were. And it's hard to believe that such a sickly man would have received a warm invitation in the mail to some snobby dinner party with the Pharisees. uh, Because these elitists didn't exactly hang out with the poor and the sick. To the contrary, they despised them. And so I'm inclined to guess that this pitiful man may have been planted there as part of the plan to test Jesus because, again, it was the Sabbath day, the day when you're not supposed to work or lift a finger, at least according to how the Pharisees misinterpreted the Sabbath command. And so they set up this trap so that if Jesus heals this man, they could blow the whistle and call foul on him having done work on the Sabbath. Now remember, that's exactly what they did with the man with the withered hand back in chapter 6, verse 7. It says there that the scribes and Pharisees, they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. And just rinse and repeat. That's what kept happening. I mean, these people were nuts, these Pharisees. First of all, they were using sick, dying people as pawns for their self-justification in rejecting Jesus. And secondly, their hearts were apparently so hardened in unbelief that even if they were to witness supernatural healing by divine power, it wouldn't face them and it wouldn't bring them to their knees in awe and worship. And such is the darkness and callousness of the pride of self-righteous men. 
And Jesus, knowing their hearts, he responded to their hidden thoughts in verse 3. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Why don't you guys tell me? I want you to say it to my face. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But verse 4, they remained silent. They didn't know what to say. They were caught in a quandary. Because if they respond, no, it's not lawful to heal on the Sabbath, then they kind of show themselves to be ruthless and cruel, which they were. Because again, here's a dying man, but all they care about is Jesus not infringing upon their man-made rule of not lifting a finger, which went beyond what God had actually said in the Sabbath command. And so to say no, they would be admitting how inhumane they were beneath basic human decency. But if they said yes, it is lawful to heal on the Sabbath, then first of all, they eat their own words and their whole legalistic teaching on the Sabbath comes into question. But secondly, Jesus would then ask, well, then why aren't you doing anything? Why why aren't you helping this poor man suffering and dying before your very eyes? And so they remained silent. And the silence was deafening. And then Jesus takes the man and miraculously heals him of dropsy and sends him home well. And then he turns to the Pharisees and lawyers in verse 5 and says, You hypocrites, as implied by what he says, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? Look, if your own child tripped and fell into a ditch on the Sabbath, would you wait till the next day to pull him out? Are are, are you so evil and psychopathic to do something like that? What human being would operate like that? You think God God is pleased with that? Well, then why do you impose such harsh, ruthless rules upon others? And and here's the clincher, the key implied rhetorical question. Do you really think that this is what God intended by the Sabbath command. Do you think him to be vile and merciless and loveless like you? And they were left speechless, as verse 6 says. But you see, it's important that we understand the big picture of what's going on here in these refutations, which goes for all the other Sabbath controversies. The issue at the end of the day is not only that the Pharisees failed to love others and exercise compassion. That was but a symptom. Because the fundamental problem was this, that they didn't know God. Despite all their so-called commitment to the Bible and study of it, they espoused a dead religion Devoid of a love for God, first and foremost. Devoid of knowing the love of God. Knowing God for who he really is and what he is like. Because if you had known him at all, and if you had an inkling of a living relationship with him, you would never in a million years have interpreted the Sabbath command this way. Because you would have known by spiritual instinct that God is the perfection of holy love who gives and gives and gives of himself to his people. The God for whom all blessings flow. And so when he commanded his people to observe the Sabbath, it was meant to be a gift of rest. 
from the burden and anxiety of self-sustenance, teaching his people to trust that he will provide all that they need. And they don't have to work slavishly out of fear that they won't be enough. It was never, ever, ever meant to be this straitjacket of solitary confinement as the Pharisees made it out to be. As though God finds some sick and twisted pleasure in seeing his people paralyzed with inactivity once a week, obeying just for the sake of obeying, even though it makes no sense. And so what was fundamentally wrong with the Pharisees is that the love of God was absent in their hearts and thinking. They had no sight nor taste for the true glory of God, which is why they could never see the loving intent with which he gave his commandments. And so it became a dead, miserable, empty religion. Now, for honest as believers, aren't we prone to falling into the same mindset? Maybe not to such extremities, but I mean a similar principle. Because what the Pharisees show us is how dangerously easy it is to read the word of God, yet miss the heart of God in your reading of it. How easy it is for our devotional lives to take on a Pharisaic bent, where we end up doing the motions of reading the word and engaging in prayer, but our hearts are far from him. And so these spiritual disciplines quickly degenerate into the mode of empty legalism, just checking off things on a to-do list and exercising the spiritual disciplines because we have to, because that's what we're supposed to do, and it becomes a burden. You know, what I've just described to you is the daily spiritual battle for every believer. It is the war against your own flesh. It is hard. I mean, speaking for myself, although I love Christ and I want to know him better each day, my goodness, the reality is, the, the, the reality that I'm confronted with every morning is how cold my heart is so often. And I tend to lose sight of the warmth of divine love. But you see, there is the remedy that in your devotion, you need to fight to not just do them, but you need to fight to see and believe the love of God behind every syllable of his words. To see how every word is spoken for your blessing, a gift from him. Now, how do you do that practically? It's by not just settling to understand what God commands, but to resolve to prayerfully meditate on why he commands it. And you need to let the gospel be what anchors your meditations and brings you to the answer, which is the overflowing love of God as to the reason why God commands and instructs us with anything. Case in point here with the Sabbath command, the essential question, why did God give this command? In the first place, it was to relieve our burdens. It was to give man rest, which is what the word Sabbath means. Shabbat means to rest. And this is why earlier in chapter 13, a very similar situation, if you recall some months ago, 
In chapter 13, verses 10 through 17, Jesus, remember, healed this incapacitated woman with a disfigured back on the Sabbath day to the chagrin of the synagogue ruler. Man, what's up with these synagogue rulers? And this man had the audacity to say out loud, oh, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come back on those days and be healed. Crazy man. But how did Jesus respond? He didn't just say, no, you're wrong. But he said, hey, knucklehead, isn't the Sabbath the best day for this woman to be healed and loose from her bondage? Isn't the Sabbath, isn't this day out of all the days, the most fitting day for her to be relieved and to be given rest? Because it is a day of rest for the weary, relief for the burden. This is the true spirit and intent of the Sabbath which Jesus was recovering. And to punctuate this all, we know this with absolute certainty. Because God has proven his loving intent ultimately through Christ. Because the works of the law that we can never do, he has done for us. The work of God, not by the work of man. And the righteousness of sinless obedience that we can never provide for ourselves. Our Lord of the Sabbath provided for us at the cost of himself to give us eternal joy, peace, and rest. This is how you feel the pulse of divine love in his word. By contending for the gospel in your own heart. Listen, it's good and it's important to contend for the gospel against the world, against the hostile world and all the unbiblical ideologies out there. But first and foremost, as believers, we must contend for the gospel in our own hearts. There is plenty of battles to be fought there. And so Christian, you must fight the Pharisaic spirit with the sword of the Holy Spirit, who is your helper and counselor to bear witness to the truth and purity of the gospel of God's infinite love in Christ. And so this is the first angle we see of the Pharisaic corruption of love and that it was just absent and void in their hearts altogether. And the second is from this parable that Jesus proceeds to tell in which he addresses what we might call the inversion of love. From verse 7, after the Sabbath debacle, as dinner is still underway, verse 7 tells us that Jesus began noticing how all the invited guests were fighting for the most prominent seat. In verse 7, it says that they were choosing the places of honor, fighting for position to sit closest to the honored guest. It was a race to the front row seats, as it were. Now, apparently, uh, that's not an issue with our church because uh, no one wants to sit in the front row. We have the opposite problem. It's always a race to the back row. But hey, I'm thankful we have ushers now. Thank you for everyone serving as ushers. Bring them to the front. Let's rectify this uh, problem. But anyway, where was I? Uh, Well, so as Jesus observed that pattern uh, amongst the Pharisees in the guest list of this dinner party, he, he, he saw that they were always fighting to be the man, the center of attention. And so he took the opportunity to teach them via this parable, which is a fancy word for an illustration. Verse 8, When you are invited by someone to a wedding guest, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, hey, why don't you give this place to this person, or give your place to this person, and then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. But instead, when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place 
so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, and then you will be honored in the presence of everybody. Now, what did Jesus mean by this? The point is not about where you should sit in a room. Okay, Jesus wasn't giving lessons on etiquette, but he was addressing their mindset of asserting yourself, of promoting yourself. Now, what Jesus says here is really nothing new. It's the same lesson taught in the Old Testament in Proverbs 25, verses 6 and 7. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. The, the word of God is addressing the folly of thinking highly of yourself and how there's actually great shame in it and, it, and you will be put to shame. And you know, at the heart of this mindset is the governing principle that I deserve good things because I'm worthy of it. I deserve the honored seat. I am entitled to the position of honor and recognition and praise and favor. That's how the Pharisees thought and that's how they operated. Why? Because at the end of the day, they loved themselves. This is why they had no love for God because they were preoccupied with a love for self. They refused to believe that loving God and being loved by God is in fact the supreme happiness and satisfaction of the soul. And so this beautiful order was inverted. And that's why they were always in the business of self-promotion, parading their own self-worth and esteem. But to this, Jesus says, no, 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 humble yourself. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Verse 11, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, put to shame. Like if you live your life seeking ultimately to make much of yourself, if you're without Christ and you live a self-centered life of glorifying yourself, resisting the glory of God, if you insist on that life of self-pursuit and self-gratification and living for your own will, you will be put in your place. And it will be shown how much you as a sinner you are actually entitled only to the wrath of God. And you will experience everlasting contempt and shame as you rightfully deserve. But as Jesus says, the one who humbles himself, the one who humbles himself in repentance and saving faith, confessing himself to be an unworthy sinner, and so clings to the gospel promise of undeserved mercy and grace in Jesus Christ. This one will be exalted. And this is the precious paradox of the gospel. That only when we bow the knee to Christ are we lifted up, raised with him to endless life, and seated with him in the heavenly places, as Ephesians 1 says. What an amazing truth. But again, in our daily walk with Christ, this glorious truth to which we hold, isn't it so often tested and challenged by that leaven of the Pharisees that creeps into our hearts? Because it's, it's in the smallest and subtlest of ways as we struggle often with contentment. 
when life doesn't go as we expect, when circumstances seem to turn against us, or things just aren't what we planned for, how quickly do we turn into a Pharisee in our own hearts and we say, but I deserve better than this. You know, we may not use those words explicitly and consciously, but truthfully, that, that, that is what we're saying deep inside. I deserve a better seat of circumstances. Why does that person's seat seem so much better? If only I had a better seat, I would be happier or I would be godlier. But you see, all of us have this leaven inside of us that we must daily put to death by the Spirit of God who ministers the truth to us. And the truth is this. It's not that you deserve better than this, whatever this is. But whatever the this is, it is better than you deserve. This is the true Christian mindset that I am an unworthy recipient of the undeserved grace of God. And whatever pains and sorrows or trials come my way, it is still better than I deserve. Because no matter what happens, I have been given an undeserved seat at God's table. He has exalted me already to the status of his own child, an unthinkable exaltation of a poor sinner like me. And if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up to save me from my sin, then how will he not also with him graciously give all things and supply my every need and never fail to be faithful to me in and through trials and pains? That is biblical truth. You see, our every struggle with contentment is really our flesh exerting itself in pride and entitlement. But the reason this happens in the first place is because we lose sight of the unfailing love of God for His people. And that even our trying circumstances are places in life that He has purposely put us in with utmost love, all to reveal His sufficiency for us all to purge our fleshly propensity to to trust in ourselves and so purify our abiding trust in Him, to mature us in greater Christ-likeness, that as we suffer, we actually experience greater intimacy and nearness to the suffering servant Himself, the man of sorrows. See, this this spiritual combat against discontentment and entitlement It is won by fighting to trust the never-failing goodness of God's love and His fatherly wisdom. And this leaven can only be subdued by, by preaching to ourselves the nature and character of God. You know, in my own life, I have been helped tremendously by the encouraging words of Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century English Baptist preacher, who wrote this, quote, Remember this, had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there, end quote. In all the times I have been tempted and many times fallen into discontentment, I always tell myself, no, 
if there were a better situation for me, God would have already put me there. But as it is, where I am now, though I don't understand it, though I cannot see it, loving hands have put me there. That is a true struggle of faith. Well, we come to this last little portion as Jesus draws attention to the weakness of the Pharisees' love. Now, what do I mean by that? In verse 12, after giving that parable of taking seats at a wedding feast, it says that Jesus, he said also to the man who had invited him. Now, earlier, Jesus was telling the the parable to everyone in the room, but this time, Jesus directed his words to this individual, to this host of the dinner, the ruler of the Pharisees who invited Jesus over. Now, why was Jesus singling him out? Well, given by what Jesus says next, presumably it's because this man heard the parable Jesus just told about fighting for the seats of honor, and maybe he had thought to himself, well, he's definitely not talking about me. I'm not here fighting for the best seat because, look, I'm providing the seats, and I'm providing food. What a generous, loving person I am. I am so humble, I don't even know what to do with myself. I must be the most selfless and loving person in this room. And so he must have justified himself like so. But Jesus says, hold up, not so fast. Verse 12, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you to return and, and, and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor crippled, lame, blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection. Now, obviously, Jesus is not saying, never invite anyone who has any amount of wealth or who, never invite your family over, never have a Thanksgiving dinner. You're only allowed to invite certain types of people. That that would be a very weird, arbitrary, legalistic rule. Nor is Jesus saying that receiving any invitation in return... It's a sin. Because again, Jesus' intent here is not to give protocols on party hosting, but it is a parabolic point meant to address a deeper principle and mindset, which is to disarm and dismantle the pride and self-righteousness of this host. Because Jesus is saying, are you so impressed with yourself? that you can be generous with these people who will sing your praises and give you lavish gifts in return. I know how you guys are. You guys scratch each other's backs. That's how you roll. That's not impressive. Anyone can do that. If you love those who love you in return, if you do good to those who do good to you, what's so amazing about that? Even sinners do the same. Who doesn't love The lovable. Who doesn't love the easy to love? Your friends, your family, your colleagues who will return the favor. That's natural love, which the flesh is fully capable of. It's weak. It's unimpressive. Because frankly, it's self-serving. You see, Jesus is pointing out to the Pharisees that even the love that you think you have and show to others, it is tainted with your self-serving motives. It is weakened by your sinful flesh. 
It is an unregenerate love, not because such love is necessarily so evil, but because it is a love that even the unregenerate are fully capable of showing and exercising. And so how foolish and pathetic it is to toot your own horn because you hosted a Super Bowl party for your friends. My goodness, the whole country does that once a year in February. That's not impressive. But what is the love that Jesus calls us to? Love your enemies. Love those who have hurt you. Love those who aren't so easy to love. Love those who you don't naturally get along with. Love those who can never repay you. And in doing so, you will be like children of the Most High because God is kind every day, even to the ungrateful and evil. For He makes His sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. This is God's common grace. And if that's not enough, He has shown His special, saving, costly grace Upon his people, and that while we were still sinners and enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ did not die for the godly. But it was while we were dead in sin, hostile and resistant to him, offending him and dishonoring God, it is then that Christ took on the sin of his people and died for them. And to those whom he has saved by grace, he calls them to be holy. For he is holy. To know and to show a true holy love for others. A love set apart from the love of this fallen world. A selfless, self-giving love just as Christ has loved us. A love that reflects the purity of the gospel. Of infinite divine love for even his once enemies. You know, it's easy for us to grow proud, self-righteous, self-impressed at our feeble, fleshly endeavors of love, loving the lovable. But the holy standard of love to which God has called us, by this standard, who among us can be proud? Immediately, we are flatlined and we are confronted with our spiritual weakness. And it reveals actually how still self-centered we really are and that we're not as loving and as virtuous as we think ourselves to be but this should drive us to daily humble confession and prayerful dependence to ask god for help in dying to ourselves and taking up our cross daily and again the strength and empowerment to do so it comes from the gospel Only by knowing the supernatural love of God towards you first and and relentlessly meditating on the amazing grace and kindness He has shown you can you be able to imitate His glorious likeness. You know, nothing will humble you and disarm your pride faster than realizing that you were once God's enemy. And that he had every right to tear you into pieces. But instead, Jesus took your place and was torn for you. And all of a sudden, whatever offenses someone has done to you, 
it really seems to pale in comparison. And it is the true Christian spirit that says, no one can offend me more than I have offended God. No one can grieve me more than I have grieved God. No one is more unlovable in my eyes than how unlovable I was in God's eyes. And yet he has so loved me in Christ and continues to love me still now to keep me, to defend me, to shepherd me, to forgive me, even when I am prone to wander away. How can I then ever refuse to love someone, no matter who they may be? That's gospel power. That's the power of the ministry of the Holy Spirit at work within us. And this pleases God because by this, we magnify His glory in our lives. Because our lives reflect the glory of His holy love and nature and character. And this pleases God so much that Jesus tells us in verse 14, you will be repaid at your resurrection at the end of the age. God knows and he keeps track of everything. And the life of pleasing God is not easy. To live as a conduit of divine love is no doubt difficult and painful at times. You may not receive recognition. There won't be just compensation as you bear a lot of grief. You're always the one forgiving and never being appreciated for it. You may have to carry many scars in this life. But God sees And he will see to it that every scar is fully redeemed in the eternal rewards of 10,000 fold. And this is the inexhaustible love of God for his people. And that he has not only given the best of himself to us in this life, but there awaits even more in eternity. No eye has seen nor ear has heard, nor heart has imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. And church, may the Lord protect us all from the leaven of the Pharisees. And with all these things in mind, may God daily purify our hearts in the holiness of His great love and make us more into his wonderful likeness. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we praise you and we adore you for the God of eternal triune holy love that you are. And thank you that that has been manifested and revealed fully and finally in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, who so loved his church, who so loved his bride, the ugliest bride, the most abominable bride, and yet he so loved her, his church, that he gave himself for her. 
Oh Lord, make us more like your son and fill our hearts with the vastness of your love that we might be filled with praise to you and reflect your glory in the lives that we live in pursuit of you. Father, we thank you for the gift of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. What a gesture of love. What a visible sight of your love. As Christ continually gives to us and reminds us through these ordinary elements of the bread and the cup that he is here to give to us, to love us even if after we have come with burdened weeks, with much spiritual failure and weakness, that he is always here to strengthen us and to feed us with the promises of his gospel. And so, Lord, that is our prayer, that your spirit would help us to receive them by faith and to be reaffirmed and reassured in the great eternal unfailing love you have given to us in your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.